This is session 16 of Technology-Enabled Blitzscaling, a Stanford University class taught by Reid Hoffman, John Lilly, Alan Blue, and Chris Yeh. This class features Reid Hoffman interviewing Reid Hastings, the co-founder and CEO of Netflix. This podcast has been produced by Greylock Partners. For more podcasts, class notes, slides, and videos, please visit greylock.com. As a uh, quick intro, um, uh, Reed Hastings is widely known within uh, the Valley as being one of the most uh, principled, purposeful, rigorous in his analysis and intelligence about being a founder and being a CEO. Uh, he gets requests all the time uh, to uh, join people's boards, including mine, you know, eight years ago or whatever that was, which he was like, yeah, yeah, yeah I'm focused on education, go away, which is a... Uh, uh, you know, part of focus is one of the things that uh, makes uh, Reed unusually strong. So we are uh, extraordinarily lucky to have him with us here today. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think what I will open with is another piece of, of something where you are uh, famous for, which is the Netflix culture and the culture deck. And um, how did the first culture deck end up coming about, getting published, Right, there's version two, which we'll get to, but like what led to that creation of that deck, the publication of it? Like what was that, what was that as an act of management, thought leadership? It's not a, wasn't a pre-read. There's no pressure on it, but how many people have already read it? So I said kind of Netflix culture deck. Cause that's our, okay, that's fine. Thank you. Um, so about eight years ago, uh, we were getting tired of new employees joining and I would meet with all the new employees and go through this 100-page slide deck and two out of three really got it and understood um, and their managers had properly described to them Netflix and one out of three were in shock um, because the deck has some aggressive statements like adequate performance gets a generous severance package um, and we're a team, not a family. And so if you know that going in, you can love it. Um, but if you don't know it and you didn't expect it, you feel bait and switched. And so the big driver um, was we realized every candidate should get it. And then, of course, if every candidate's going to get it, it's going to be public. So let's just uh, make it public. And uh, was the construction of it a way to essentially, uh, you know, as you're doing scale, to kind of keep a cultural norm as you scaled? Was that, was that one of the central tools for doing that? Yes. Um, I wouldn't quite say keep a cultural norm, but it was to share and debate. One of the great things about putting things in writing is that it makes it more debatable. Um, and so it's not just hearing a sermon and it's like, okay, that's nice, but you can comment on, you know, this part here that we wrote down doesn't really seem appropriate or doesn't seem what we do or, you know, to some degree, it's a bill of rights for employees, which is here's a set of things that we, the company, want to and aspire to operate by. And if we don't, you can call us on it and then we'll either fix the articulation um, because it's too easy to misunderstand or live up to um, what we want to. Um, so in, in some ways, it's aspirational. Uh, and then by putting it in writing, which probably started five years before that, uh, it allows all the people in the company to collaborate on it and to suggest improvements. And what other things do you do to keep an, uh, a healthy culture at scale? Like what are the other kind of techniques in addition to the deck, addition to the onboarding? 
Yeah, I mean, I would say in our first couple of years, so we're founded about 20 years ago um, in 97 to when we went public in 2002, all we were concerned with is not going bankrupt. Uh, because the first uh, big internet recession was 2001. And so we had built up a big expense rate um, and, you know, contingent on future financing. And NASDAQ fell 75% that year and all the venture capitals felt over leveraged. They were barely going to be able to support their existing investments. Certainly no one wanted to take on new ones. Uh, and so while the year before in 2000, uh, to raise money was as easy as taking a tin can and shaking it. And, you know, like $50 million would show up in the can. It was incredible. Never seen anything like it until last year. Um, and, and then the following year after the crash, you know, you take your tin can out and shake it and someone would steal the can. And so it was an enormously sharp and short change. Uh, which is why you see so much talk today about bubble is the memory of, no one cares about the bubble, they care about the fall. Um, so suddenly we didn't have enough money, we had to lay off a third of the company in 2001, um, and we eked into profitability uh, and survived. Um, but until that point, we really spent all the time just on how are we going to get the business to be, we were DVD by mail at the time. So it was how was it going to be profitable? And only after 2002, we realized, wow, we're going to survive. Uh, that we started to think, well, we, you know, it'd be awful to not want to work here. Um, so we should try to figure out what cultural attributes were there of what we wanted to work in. We didn't set out to try to say, like, what's the most theoretically efficient culture? What's the, you know, and in some abstract sense, it was literally about us. And we realized that what we valued most, even more than success, was working with really talented people in a productive way. That that joy of excellence um, was incredible. Uh, and of course, if you can get that joy of people excellence <clears throat> and talent density, then you're very likely to win. So, you know, they come together. But at the core, it was about having dense talent. And part of it was after we did this one-third layoff, it was 120 people to 80. We had expected to basically grind to a halt be, uh, and really not be able to make any improvements because it would take 80 people just to keep the lights on. Mm -hmm. But in fact, um, we got more done with only 80 people. And we tried to figure out why, and we realized um, now there was no more, there was no dummy proofing necessary. And so it was just everybody was going fast and everything was right. And so we, we realized with the right density of talent, you know, there's very little process needed and that that was the joyful thing. So at first we said, well, let's do a one-third layoff every year. Um, that that was the key. Uh, and that's a long-term winning strategy. That's a long-term winning, <laughs> it, it might be, you know, back to the blitz scaling thing. So, uh, and then we realized, you know. Blitz shrinking, we're gonna now yeah, have blitz that. shrinking. Um, well, you want your gross ads yes. to be, yes. you know, 100% yes. and you're just your net ads are less. Uh, but talent density matters so much. Um, so then we figured, no, let's not do a layoff every year like that. Let's just do continued focus. And the big evolution we came to is for managers, they have to each year testify for each of their people uh, that if that person were trying to quit, they would try to change their mind. 
And so it's up to the manager to decide, you know, yes, I would want to change their mind, but sometimes you find uh, that you have people working for you and if they quit, you'd be like, oh, that's pretty good. And, and that's the case we wanted to proactively not wait for them to quit, mm. but proactively give them a, a generous severance package. Yep, and that's how it got into the culture deck. And what, um, in addition to kind of performance, because uh, this is actually, I'm, I'm some degree leading the witness on this or leading the, the question, but what, are, what were the key things about establishing that culture which enabled you to scale? Because this is the you know, highly aligned, loosely coupled part of your version two of the deck. So I think, um, you know, Pete, when we went public, we were 150 people uh, by then. Uh, people worried internally, now that we're public, everything's gonna, you know, go to shit. And because so many companies had done that, put in a lot of process, be very cautious, et cetera. And uh, we've made great progress really every year of pushing back on that and doing something either symbolic or real that increased employee freedom, essentially incented uh, more variance in, in what we're doing. And we realized if we're gonna run really loose, like very little rules, then you do want to set a broad context. So we set context, and this is what Reed's referring to, which is we added essentially a chapter to our slide deck, which is context, not control. And so we try to get managers to inspire and lead people rather than micromanage them. And they inspire and lead them through setting the context. What are we trying to do? What are the constraints? You know, is it a really big problem or a little problem? Uh, must be done right? Or we do an approximate version and fix later? There's a lot of context to any problem area. And if you get good at setting context, then you don't have to direct the micro specifics, but it's an art. So there's context about the problem and then there's context about behavior, which is really the, the culture, which is what are the behavioral norms in terms of honesty and sharing and forthrightness. And in terms of setting the context, I mean, like one of the things when I read, we've actually never talked about the version two of the deck. And when I read that and compared and contrast and look at it, I was like, all right, well, one of the key things is, you know, people usually want command and control, and you have an exempt, you have an exemption slide on the control, but people usually want to be able to do something like the, like a bold new innovation usually requires somebody going, this is my, like, this is my idea, I'm driving it home. How does the setting the context and that kind of innovation, how do those line up? And what do you do about that? Well, I think you might be mixing with the manager shares a lot of context, but a lot of people make decisions. And so, um, you know, and we definitely have decision owners. There's almost nothing by consensus, um, but you've got to know the context and then you make decisions. And a lot of things happen that I don't even know about, about different deals or different things or hiring. Um, like you guys are going to get lucky and, and meet with Marissa in a week or two. And one of the things that saddened me when she went to Yahoo, which was very brave of her to do, was this idea that she was going to review every resume, you know, to raise the bar on hiring. Um, and to me, that's a suicidal methodology for a senior executive because you've got a thousand people and you're so tactically buried trying to, you know, do a thousand resumes. And I think what she was going for, and you can ask her, is a symbol of I care about the details. 
but it, what you a better way to do there are, are there are better ways to do symbols, and so like I don't review resumes, I don't block hires. I look at it as my job is to evangelize the benefits of super great talent density. But we don't even try to hire perfectly because you know you're when you are interviewing it's six or eight hours with someone, you know it's something, yeah. um, but you know them so much better after they've been in for three months. So I'm like you know if you have an instinct you want to try, try take the person yeah. in. Yeah. If it doesn't work out, we'll give them a severance package and we'll move on. You know, and it's not the end of the world. Um, so we're experimental with people in the same way you might be experimental with a product feature or something. And it's important to be honest with a person when you're doing that. I mean, you, yeah. you know, um, but we don't look at it as a marriage. Yeah. There's no need to. And, and that's a, essentially an adaptation to the growth. Yeah. Well, actually, uh, I think what Marissa is trying to do is a little bit, because we had Eric in here a couple, a couple weeks ago, uh, three weeks ago. Anyway, the, um, and part of what Eric was expressing about how they built the Google culture was you can actually only hire people with certain kinds of degrees from certain kinds of universities where they were actually, in fact, reviewing every, you know, every resume, every CV before. And I think she's like, okay, we got to get to that kind of setting in the bar. And that actually kind of leads naturally to kind of one of the but questions. That's like mistaken in so many ways. Yeah. First of all, it's trying to do it the Google way, which, yes. you know, anyways. <laughs> well, that's precisely the question I was getting to, which is like, like there are other, you know, attempts at building strong cultures. Google's one of them. How would you kind of compare and contrast so that people understand that like there isn't just Netflix is the only strong culture, but here is some way of understanding the variances between strong cultures. Well, I think the key thing, it's a great point, is there are many different cultures. And as long as you're really clear about your culture, you can get the employees who love that culture and not everyone will be the same fit. Mm. Um, there are some things <clears throat> like integrity that are pretty universal, but there are other things of how to deal with dissent where there's you know, perfectly reasonable different ways and effective different ways of dealing with things. Um, and, and so, you know, the literature on culture is pretty clear that strong cultures work and yeah. weak cultures are diffuse. So in a weak culture, it's really a diverse culture. You get many people acting very differently and then they don't understand each other and they feel undercut and political. Um, even in a, let's take a Hollywood studio that many of you would not like to work in, um, they have a very clear system of how to operate in terms of how they manage the politics and it's internally consistent, okay? And everybody knows it and the people who get good at it love it uh, and a lot of people don't. And that's just a different, it's not inherently awful or, or ineffective. Um, it just wasn't right, say, for us. Um, and so that's why I think culture is an expression of what you and your senior team want to be. It's a bit aspirational in that way. Do you have a, cult, is part of the interviewing process, do you have essentially a culture check? Like the, the yes, but not like a checklist. Mm -hmm. um, culture is always something that we interview for mm. um, of kind of curiosity and and. Uh, you know, it's easy to find people who say, oh, I read the Netflix culture deck. I love it. I really want to be there. <laughs> you know, what's harder is, well, you know, what are the main things you disagree with and why? Uh -huh. You know, and when we get a blank stare, we're like, okay, not really a first principle thinker. And when yeah. they say, um, 
well, I thought the way that uh, you, you didn't talk about how to acculturate and, you know, if I'm not great on day three, am I out, you know, or is there, um, you know, it, do you look at it like an athlete where it's over some, you know, time period to prove yourself? And if so, what's that time period and why haven't you clarified that? Then we're like, oh, yeah, that's a good insight. <laughs> First principle thinker. So yeah. we're looking for people who, you know, are curious, um, typically self-confident, and they're not, um, they're questioning everything around them. Mm. Yep. Last culture question before we move on to some of the other kind of interesting lessons from Netflix. Um, missions. So I think you can only have a strong culture when you actually have a mission in the company. How do you define the Netflix mission and, and, and how is that kind of uh, embodied in the, in the strategy and the, in, the, in, the, in the work play? Well, I would say I've always believed that a strong mission statement's really important. And I have to say, we've never succeeded at it. It's like this odd thing. You know, we've had them every year for 15 years. and They're constantly different. And now we're also cynical. We're like, come on, we're trying to make people happy. I mean, that's the fundamental thing is in consumer service. You know, we're trying to be better. And, and us and Disney and mission aren't that different. There's a bunch of different tactics at it. Um, but we're an emotional product. We cater to the things that are important, but not necessary. Um, and I love that part about it. Cause like when you're selling milk or penicillin, you're selling something somebody needs and we get to sell something you want. Okay. That you choose to do because it's really cool. It's human, you know, to, uh, be entertained and to connect to people over entertainment. And so we celebrate that a lot and we want to change the industry. But in terms of, like a mission statement like so many companies have. Uh, you know, Facebook t talks about a more connected and open world. Um, and then you see that phrase again and again and again, and it's a powerful mantra. We don't have an equivalent. And I think we probably would have been stronger if we do. We, in the early days, um, it was uh, to connect people with movies they'll love. Mm -hmm. And it's okay, but it's kind of like the long kind of awkward phrase, connect people with movies they love. And, you know, it's just not punchy. And, um, and then so like we used it, we had t-shirts, you know. <laughs> and then it didn't really motivate anyone, didn't really stick. Um, but we knew we were trying to make people happy with DVDs and then eventually with streaming and original content. So it didn't hold us back much. Mm. Yeah. Um, so let's go uh, to some of the lessons from Netflix. So if you were to call a younger version of yourself and tell yourself to do the kind of what key lessons that you would do differently through Netflix, you know, through the history of Netflix. Obviously, you've been a founder of, sure. of companies before, you know, Rational, et cetera. But what were the key lessons you went, this is an inflection thing that I wish I'd done differently? Um, so we were growing, we went public in 2002, growing nicely in 03 and 04. And uh, Blockbuster, uh, which then was 20 times larger than us, uh, finally counterattacked. And, and I'm very curious. How many people raise your hand if you know what Blockbuster is? Uh, they know what it oh, is. Oh, okay. But <laughs> it's not quite. Hey, but you, but you, a more accurate now. question was you remember actually renting a DVD? Well, so, so, so. <laughs> And Redbox is still quite yes. popular. Yes. So, you know. Um, in 03 and 04, we're growing really fast. 05 Blockbuster attacks. Um, and so we thought we were very clever. We came up with a number of ways to counterattack. 
Uh, and remember that everybody's got every DVD. So you've got basically the same blockbuster and us had the same content offering because it's non-exclusive licensing to get DVDs. So we could differentiate on our service fulfillment levels were 99% and theirs were 89. But that's like a really abstract for a customer, you know, thinking of signing up doesn't mean anything, right? Um, and then they discounted massively. So it was like half our price. Um, and so we were losing share. So, uh, you know, we were struggling with what to do about it. So we did three or four big efforts. One is in the end of 05, we added Netflix Friends, which was our own social network. And remember in 05, you know, Facebook's just on a few universities, okay? So our own social network amongst our members. And if you enabled each other, you could see what each other were renting and rating. Um, and we thought, wow, the viral effects of this would be really powerful, et cetera. Uh, we added ad sales. Um, back in the day, it was like a Yahoo type banners and you could have, we could have, we sold banners, you know, above the, the choosing interface. Um, we added used DVD sales on our site to consumers. So, you know, of course we had some excess DVDs from four years ago. So we added an operation to sell them for four bucks a pop and, you know, it's a different logistics, um, but we added all that. Uh, and we added a Red Envelope Entertainment, which was a group that we um, brought in to buy DVDs, buy films out of Sundance and similar festivals to then publish them on DVDs, so getting into content. So we did these four efforts. And each one, you know, was a dozen people, 15 people, and made us feel great. I mean, the employees loved them because, you know, here was a tangible thing that was not just 98% versus 89%. Here was a thing that they couldn't do or weren't doing and was a differentiator, right? And wasn't management so clever. Uh, and we went through these waves of battles in 06 and 07. Uh, and in the end, we won. Uh, they ended up closing down their online thing and, and two years later going completely bankrupt. But we looked back and none of those four efforts made any contribution to our victory. Uh, and one by one, we had closed them down along the way, every single one of those four. And so in hindsight, we realized when attacked, we should retreat to do the core better and not try to broaden the uh, surface of attack, essentially. Uh, and it was a great lesson for us of focus and so now when people say, aren't you getting into news or sports? We're like, absolutely not, you know? <laughs> and we're really confident of our answer. Like movies and TV shows on a global basis, enormous market. And so we're much less subject to being prone to go off and chase the shiny object to try to have something in a checklist to differentiate and to trust. And in hindsight, if we had just gone from like 98% perfect to 99.9, we would have done a lot more for the business. Um, and, you know, and it's hard work. It's operational logistics, how to get DVDs not to break. I mean, the amount of polycarbonate analysis we had to do is all this stuff. Um, we would have beaten Blockbuster sooner than we did. Uh -huh. um, and so that's one of the great lessons out of that time. What about uh, Quickster? Right. Yeah, um, Quickster, we got some lessons out of. So um, we looked at, so I'll, I'll give you some context on it. We're growing uh, 07, 08, 09. We're adding streaming. 
Uh, it's a hybrid plan. You got DVDs and streaming. Uh, O10, we launch in Canada as a test in a way of both international and streaming only because there's no DVDs. And we expected, you know, X and we got 10X. So it was 10X bigger reaction and customer signups than we expected. I mean, it was just massive. Even though it was just streaming, no DVDs. And we realized, oh my God, you don't need DVDs. Okay. That wasn't and, a part of the plan from the beginning? Well, we were always going to use them as a hybrid way. Uh, to This was our differentiator against Hulu uh, because Hulu was about equal size at the time. Okay. And so, but we have DVDs too. That's our differentiator. Okay. We're streaming and DVDs. Uh-huh. You know, which was going to be compelling, was compelling to half the market, but was going to be compelling to a shrinking percentage of the market every year. So it's not what you want your brand image to be around. So we realized, wow, we cannot afford to use the crutch of DVD now um, because pure streaming works. And so we want to win as the best place to do pure streaming not be the best place to do hybrid because that wasn't a long-term benefit. So we had to uh, not rely on, on, on DVD. So I think correctly, we separated the two businesses. The huge mistake we made is, remember, 2010, we're in the middle of a recession, still pretty deep, is we said, well, it's $8 is a good price for the DVD plan. It's a good price for the streaming plan. So the combination, which is $16, is the new price. And the old price was 10 bucks. So from the customer standpoint, um, one day the price went up 60% in the middle of a recession, and now they had to deal with two user interfaces instead of one. So this was not uh, well regarded. Uh, and if we had um, done um, you know, grandfathering on the price for a couple of years, it would have been fine. Um, now, fortunately, we realized, wow, we've got to make amends. Um, but now it's too, some, a lot of people have left us and changing the price would be hard. But the symbol of Quickster was much hated, even though the name tested quite positively before we did this. It had attracted a lot of negatives. So if we kill the symbol, maybe people will forgive us. And so that's why we killed Quickster. Um, and uh, people mostly forgave us and we moved on. And one of the things I thought, well, I learned from that from you when you were doing that is I actually thought that your letter to the public on the blog was actually masterfully done. It was personal, it was open. Was that just a natural reflex as part of leadership to, to, to write that kind of letter and make it as an open statement about, look, we need to over-communicate, we need to be humble? Or was that, was that something that kind of was a result of a ton of internal discussion about how to ma- do crisis management? Well, I think uh, everyone who has both Oxford and Stanford degrees love that letter. Mm-hmm. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so I love that letter. Yes. No one else did. did. I know. <laughs> no. And, uh, it, it, in hindsight, it actually was a very boneheaded move oh, for your typical consumer. <laughs> because it was, an, it was an explanation of... Uh, basically why we needed to do this thing. Uh, and they didn't really care. Yeah. You know, it was about our survival, blah, blah, blah. And so um, there was a few more people than just you that liked it. But by and large, Maybe a room. <laughs> it was tone deaf consumer marketing because what's in it, for, they, they didn't hate the letter. Um, it, was, it had some positives of being authentic, but it, um, it, it just stirred things up. And a better thing would have just been to change the situation, i.e. Quickster or whatever, um, as opposed to get into these, uh, it's just too intellectual. Yep. So streaming wasn't part of the initial plan. What was the initial, 
What was the initial plan? Was it just DVDs? No, streaming was. Oh, uh, uh, in 87, uh, I took Tenenbaum's networking class here. And those of you, I don't know if they still use the same textbook or some ad adaptation of it, but you have to calculate the bandwidth of a station wagon filled with backup tapes driving across the country. And of course, it turns out to be terabits per second. And, you know, it's got a high latency, three days to get any bit to the East Coast, but it's super efficient digital distribution network. Uh, and in 97, when someone showed me DVD, it's the first time I'd seen it. I was like, oh my God, that's the station wagon. That's five gigabytes on this, you know, one ounce uh, plastic disc. And I bet you can mail that. And there's my network, there's my station wagon. Um, and so we always conceived of DVD by mail as a digital distribution network with high latency. Yep. And someday we'd use the internet to take the latency out. Yeah. Um, and early internet was more expensive to deliver five gigs than mail. You know, it's only it took another three or four years of, of Moore's Law to, to make that cross over. But we always conceived of DVD as temporary, internet streaming as the long term. Was there anything in the initial plan that turned out to be radically wrong that your engagement with the market changed? Yeah, in 97, when we were first seeking funding, we thought it would be mostly streaming in five years by 2002. And in 2002, there was nothing. Uh, and it was still dial-up. AOL was, was, the company was in trouble, but dial-up was still king. Uh, and so our round then said by within five years, um, you know, streaming will be half our business. Yeah. And by 2007, it was still zero. Mm -hmm. Okay, and then, so we said once more, next five years, you know, it's gonna be half our business. <laughs> and we were wrong, but the other way. But the next five years, it was like 60%. Uh -huh. yep. um, so we just kept repeating the same thing and eventually it turned out right. Uh -huh. Yeah, one of the things that I uh, sometimes like to say about predictions is uh, the only prediction about the future that is generally true is that most predictions of the future are false. But, you know, <laughs> it's, it's the uh, That's right. paradox of this. So, um, because we're gonna have, you know, some number of people here are actually entrepreneurs. Some of them are, are planning on starting companies. What was, um, like, is there anything in the financing process for early Netflix that you would, lessons you learned that you would redo, like in terms of how you ran the financing? So I'm more relevant, I think. Uh, so let's see, I graduated in 88, uh, worked at a research lab, worked at a networking company, worked at a startup that failed where I was uh, just a, hardcore engineer, uh, and then I had an idea. And you really wanna do the entrepreneurial thing when you have the right idea. Um, there's no point of deciding, I'm gonna do it this year with the best idea I've got, uh, that, that you're probably gonna have crap results. And so it's when some idea is just shaking you so hard that you'll go into poverty to see that idea materialized. Um, and you just, the idea is really important to you. And then you change your life to become an entrepreneur to do the idea. Okay, and so the, I, the concept, whatever it is that you have has to, and it's good to constantly be thinking about what could that concept be, but um, uh, I would approach it that way. So my first company was funded um, 20 people, 20K a piece. Um, so classic, you know, f well, broader family and friends and angel round. Um, only one or two semi-professional, um, no one, 
you know, close to Sam Altman or someone, someone like that. And it was a little less developed, you know, 20 years ago in the ecosystem. Um, on that money, we were able to launch a product, get some initial traction. Um, and then we got our first venture capital, um, which uh, was the predecessor to benchmark Merrill Pickard um, and Mayfield. And uh, that worked out, I would say, very well. We got people that we trusted and really helped us grow the business. So I had an enormously positive venture capital experience in that way. And what you realize is many third party like vendors and banks and things, they will screw with your company because they don't really care, but they care a lot about their reputation with your board members. And your, your board members, when they're venture capitalists, become the guarantor um, that you won't get screwed with, uh, at least much less anyway, yep. um, because of their, their long-term reputation is with your board members, not with you typically. And so that's a big, subtle uh, value add. Uh, in Netflix's case, I could self-fund. I had done, done well enough on the first company, uh, which got sold in 97, uh, that I self-funded the first couple rounds. And um, so it's not relevant probably for you know, a typical situation. Um, but nothing, I mean, I probably would have taken, in hindsight, we wish we had done more debt and less equity and you know, all the normal things <laughs> yeah, yeah. that, you know. The, uh, nothing, the, the, the prediction from success. Yes, that's right. Back, yes. Uh, <laughs> nothing too dramatic. Yeah. Uh, how about your first hires? How would you think about, because you know, you, you've now done this twice, both times successfully, once massively successfully. How, would you, how do you think about the first five to 10 people? How do you think about doing that hiring? How do you run it? You know, it's people you want to work with, but you can't be afraid to change. Um, you know, you can't let friendship get in the way of professional judgment. So you've always got to be thinking, do I have the right team? And I owe it to the whole team, to the marketplace, to my investors, to myself, to do what I think is the right thing for the company. And when I was first a CEO, I had never managed anyone. So I'd never written a review for anyone or anything and, uh, because I was an individual engineer. Um, and, so I, and I found a lot of those communication things difficult. And in particular, I couldn't possibly fire someone. Um, it felt so cruel. It felt inhuman. And it, I just, you know, it's like breaking up with a girlfriend or boyfriend or something, but worse. Or, you know, and so it felt awful because it was selfish. And, you know, um, so it took me probably three years before um, I came to a view that I had and the rest of the company was depending on me to do the right thing. Uh, and that it wasn't about me um, being selfish and pushing the person out. Um, it was about me protecting the company. And once I could neutralize the value scales that way, I could comfortably say to someone, I'm sorry for this, but I think it's best for the company um, if we end your employment. Um, and, you know, once it was, and I think it's best for the company, uh, I could get there. Um, now, many of you are probably more sophisticated, more mature. You've broken up with more partners, so it's easier for you. Um, but, you know, because it just takes practice, right? And we don't, we don't get enough practice uh, in that. Actually, there's a book I recommend uh, to people, which I don't know if you've encountered, uh, by Fred Kaufman called Conscious Business. And I'll get you a copy, but it's actually very similar, which is um, thinking about compassion and compassion management. Mm -hmm. The compassion is not only to the individual, the compassion is to the company, mm -hmm. the compassion is to the customers, the compassion is to shareholders. You actually have to integrate all of that compassion. Once you're doing that, 
that actually makes the, oh yeah, I understand this is painful for you, but actually in fact, it's still a compassionate act. And that was actually one of the things I found really good in how Fred thinks about these things. Yeah, and, and I think one part of compassion is a severance package because, you know, when you cut someone loose and, you know, it's a week or two of pay, it really can be difficult for them. Um, but our minimum is four months and it goes up from there. So even if like two weeks in, we realize, you know, there's a mistake, as long as the person hasn't lied to us or something, you know, but uh, we've made a mistake, they get a four month severance package. Uh, and that does a couple things. One is, you know, it makes the person um, feel better about it because uh, they know that's, you know, it's material amount of money. And again, four months is the minimum. And a two, we get a legal release um, in exchange for that. And so despite the fact that we've separated from a you know, thousand people, maybe um, we've never had an employee lawsuit um, because you know, of this. And then third and most subtly, managers are really nice people. They're human beings and they're good with people. So they don't like doing mean things. And so you can think of the, the re, severance payment as like a bribe to the manager to do the right thing because it makes it easier. Yep. And without that, what they do is they put an employee on a performance improvement plan. And then the two of them go through this excruciating dance, you know, where uh, to, you know, the takes two or three or four months. And then they break up, but it's clearly documented. And that's just a lot worse. So yeah. that's why we avoid that and essentially buy out. And, and then the person's good. They'll take a month or two off and then they'll get snapped up somewhere. Yep. When did you uh, start with the four-month severance package? It was three months in, from the very beginning. So oh. it, no. That's unusual for a startup. Yes. It, um, I mean, it's real money. Yes. Um, but it, uh, it's worth it. Because again, otherwise the peop you, that person, it's costing you anyway. It doesn't really cost you anymore. Yes. Okay, because you're going to spend the three months managing the person out. Yes. And so you're going to end up with yeah. that hit. It's kind of the classic. Um, all right, so let's uh, actually know one thing. Has your hiring changed as you scaled? Like your hiring practices? And because and, like, you know, you, you're very familiar with the whole blitz scaling pieces of how all these things change at each different magnitude. Was there anything notable when you look back at hiring that you said, oh, these are things we added in as we got to larger scales? No, I would say we, we have a very big people judgment process. Some companies try to standardize and you know, put a lot of statistics and analysis in, and we've never believed in that. Um, we say about data, you know, use a lot of data when you're picking stocks, but probably don't use a lot of data in picking a spouse that the more that you're in an emotional element and a gut feel element, the less useful data is. And the more you want to really listen to your intuition and judgment. And so we spend a lot of time with candidates um, trying to get them to talk and feel, but then we don't do like, how long did it take analysis or I don't know, something like that. And then we do a lot on references. I'm always stunned how many companies don't do good references, um, how many employees that... I don't get called about. And I'm like, really? You didn't even call, you yes. know? And so we're manic on getting, and always blind. I mean, we never even ask the person for references. There's this great tool, LinkedIn. And so you can find the reference. <laughs> like it's that has changed the game yes. in uh, references. Yeah. So let's go to some of the areas where Netflix has done some very interesting and actually unique strategies that as far as I could tell, no one else ever did them. Uh, and there may be additional ones, the ones I'm about to ask you about, but let's start with the, uh, the prize for the recommendation algorithm, right? Where you kind of said, okay, let's, this is one of the most important parts of our business. 
you know, which other movies should you also see? How do we essentially crowdsource and get network intelligence for the best possible ideas? Let's do a prize. How is that conceived? How did it work? Would you do it again? Would you do it differently? Um, I'll tell you the story of it, but unfortunately it's disappointing because it turns out that we did one, it was epic, and we've never been able to do another. So it's not like a general purpose thing that you can use a lot. Once in a while, there's a problem that uh, is amenable to um, outside analysis. That one was. Uh, we hit the right tones on it. It was transformative for Netflix in the machine learning community in 2007 um, and really helped um, you know, move things up a notch. Um, and still today, it's, it's, you know, we get residual goodwill from it. And so, of course, we want to do prize two and prize three and prize four. And we still have not found even a single other one problem that was amenable to that kind of formalized uh, architecture. So very specialty exotic tool um, as you grow companies. And say a little bit about how you did the tool. Is there anything you would have changed? I understand it's rare. And then what you got out of it. It's, it was an open contest. We put out a data set and it's like crack this data set uh, to this too is reducing the uh, uh, root mean squared error uh, by 10%. Um, and uh, you could submit you know, these attempts because you do a new algorithm, like an, but you could think of it like cracking a cryptographic thing or any of those, like pay for bug bounties is a good one you know, that people do uh, as an example of a crowdsource one. But again, there are these little pockets where it, it's a workable solution. And did you end up getting better algorithm or did you end up getting mostly better goodwill? Uh, the much bigger benefit in goodwill. Yep. Some benefit, the algorithm worked and we put it in place, yep. but then we grew past it. Yeah. You know? And so it wasn't like a permanent step function, it was a one-time yep. thing. So now let's go to original content. Um, this is probably one of the things that has probably most stunned most classic Silicon Valley people because we think we're good at tech. Uh, that's what the talent base here is. We're bad at content programming. That's what you go down to LA for. Um, you know, it's the kind of thing where a, a intensely engineering and, and technology-driven culture will be intrinsically bad at this because it'll be bad at people, it'll be bad at emotions. And so when you, when, when you start doing this, you know, I think the, the, the general, quote unquote, received wisdom in the Valley was, oh, that's a, that's a mistake. And then, of course, you pull it out, you do it much more successfully than, like, you know, Amazon also doing it, um, and then, you know, later following, and then, you know, other folks. What led to the strategy? Why is it that you, you know, just literally, you know, uh, trounced con conventional wisdom on this? What were the lessons from that? I'd say Amazon's doing a pretty reasonable job, but we'll, we can come to that. Um, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. Um, every cable network, uh, FX, AMC, HBO, started on other people's content and then got some scale and distribution and then went into doing their own original content. So um, the path for Netflix was well understood uh, like other cable networks. So it wasn't like, oh my God, we never thought about this kind of thing. You, you get more differentiation and love and value um, from if you do the content well. Again, we tried it early in 2005 on a DVD basis. We only had 5 million subscribers. And the economics were roughly um, for a movie, like we got this cool Maggie Gyllenhaal movie at Sundance. Um, we would have normally bought, if suppose Sony Classics had bought the film, 
uh, we would have bought uh, 20,000 DVDs, you know, at uh, 20 bucks, so $400,000. Uh, but instead now we could buy the film for $2 million and put $2 million of marketing in it. So we had 10 times the cost and we still didn't need more than 20,000 DVDs. Okay, so we're like, wow, this sucks. <laughs> we're paying 10 times as much. And meanwhile, Sony bought some other movie, made it popular enough with our members that we still had to buy the 20,000. So we didn't really save anything, right? And we realized we're just not nearly at scale. And, and we got out of it. And then in 2010, um, we were spending enough on big ticket TV shows from a licensing standpoint um, that uh, my partner, Ted, who lives in Ted Sarandos, who lives in LA, said, you know, now's the time. And we were like, oh my God, are you crazy? We're gonna put a hundred million dollars. It was like a quarter of the content budget. And he was like, don't worry, I've negotiated. We don't have to pay for it till 2013. Um, <laughs> don't worry, the bill will come due the later. The bill will come due later. You know, it's due on arrival. <laughs> I'm like, oh yeah, I feel great now. Um, and, uh, but man, it was transformative. So um, he picked incredibly for uh, what we need. And I, I don't get any credit for that. Um, that was all him. And then now Ted's built a team, um, you know, from studios that are, you know, cherry picking some of the best people out of CBS, NBC um, to do exactly that. And they're, you know, they really know how to run shows. And the main thing is the cultural attributes that we talked about before, context, not control, freedom and responsibility. Those have played extremely well in our relations with the showrunners, with the producers. Um, and so it's been a very consistent model. And it turns out, that really our culture is designed at inspiring and motivating creative people. And you can be creative software person, creative marketer, creative content producer. You know, it's really in the creative world. And the creative world, the hallmark is uh, you do your best thinking in the shower. You have a huge idea, you know, uh, the day after Thanksgiving, you know, on a mountain bike ride trying to recover. Uh, you know, it's not like, you know, you need eight, 10, 12, 15 hours in the office doing something because in the creative community, it's synthesizing all of these things. And that's true in, in a, a number of fields. And is this, uh, was the cost reason, the reason you did, because most of your, I think all of your original content's been TV shows, not movies, or is it most? Uh, most, we just had a big one, Beasts of No Nation was our uh -huh. first uh, big movie. And then we have one with Brad Pitt mm -hmm. uh, next year called War Machine. Mm -hmm. And, and was the reason, because of the cost of TV, the reason you focused on TV, or was there a, a different reason to initially focus on TV and build there? The first? economics of TV are much better and there's too much capital chasing movies mm. because of its historic legacy. So the returns in the movie business are just much harder to make money. And so yes, uh, TV is less expensive per hour typically, but not for any inherent reason, just because that's what other people spend. So to be as good as them, that's all you have to spend. Mm. Um, so it, it's really influx of capital. And then of course, when you fall in love with a the show, then there's a built-in market for season two. Um, so that's a, a great thing. And, and how is the original content playing now? What, what's the, what are the current things that are knocking out of the park? What have you learned from them? Uh, huge hit right now, Master of None. Anybody seen it? Couple of the rest of you, you have got to go see it. I'm telling you, watch the first two or three episodes. Uh, Aziz Ansari, and it's, it's his commentary on life. And it's unbelievably funny. And he casts his parents in it and gets away with it. Um, and it's both warm and delicious and uh, biting um, and, and hugely original. 
so that's our current one. Narcos was a big one this summer, um, you know, which was American company Us contracting with Galmont, which is the oldest film producing company in the world. It's a French company uh, filming in Bogota, Colombia um, with Brazilian talent. And it's super popular in Germany. Uh, and so... That's define globalism. <laughs> that's right. And so this is why Netflix is racing to get as global as quickly as possible, is we want to produce content all over the world to share with the world. Um, and so it's not a Hollywood to the world. You know, it's really connecting great stories. Uh, is there anything that you, when you look back at Netflix, you think was a, uh, a kind of a, a strategy that you pioneered that we, that we didn't cover, that that would be useful for the students? Uh, once you're public, which would be a great day, um, uh, you're going to have an issue around stock volatility and, and stock comp uh, options and RSUs that uh, really frustrates people because most of our company's stocks are pretty volatile. Um, and then if the stock goes down, people feel cheated. And um, so uh, I think the mechanism, if you get to that stage, look up how Netflix does stock options because it's from my experience in the first company, uh, Pure Software, uh, with dealing with that volatility that we did a big adaptation in, in, in Netflix that I think works much better. Um, and it's basically price averaging uh, if you follow stock markets. So let's switch to a little bit of the kind of the uh, classic role of a job, like the role of the CEO. How do you define the role of the CEO? That definitely varies by stage of company. Um, in the first couple of years, you do everything. Um, you know, you're doing dishes at night. You're, um, you know, coding maybe. You're writing marketing materials for sure. You're dealing with customers and investors. And, you know, you have so many disadvantages as an irrelevant little nothing as a company um, that you have to make up for it with um, talent and, and hard work and brute force. Um, and so if you're lucky, that's only a couple of years as opposed to 10 years um, where you're just on call constantly in a very intense way. Um, and then the trick is, you know, as you get to 50, 100 people, you've got to evolve your management style. As you get to 500 people, um, you know, kind of each 10x, maybe even just 5x, you've got to adapt uh, to be more strategic because it used to be you knew every person and now you don't. So now you've got to manage a little bit differently and still you want to be, you know, a great leader for those people. So when you get to real scale, most of what I do is... Um, vision about what markets we should be in. Like we should go global, we should do originals, but I'm not picking countries and I'm not picking shows. Um, you know, vision of, uh, we should spend, you know, five or 10% of revenue on marketing as opposed to 50% or 2%. So some big macro decisions like that, but not what's the campaign. Um, so there's vision there. There's vision in terms of culture. How, what are the rules of the road of how the firm operates? What's our character so that it's a healthy um, place? Uh, so uh, vision, focus, um, inspiration. But you really, you can't do much of the work because it's just too big. And so if you try to, you'll A, burn yourself out and B, um, you know, burn, get everyone else upset. So it in my first company, it's probably a more relevant example for all of you. 
Um, so I was 33, the company's growing, we're about 50 people. And I was still trying to code at night. We had 50, yeah, 50 people. I was still writing product at night and then trying to be CEO a day and sleeping at work. Uh, and I wasn't careful enough about taking showers. And, you know, finally someone said to me like, you know, shower, you know, and it's, <laughs> it's just gross. You know, we, we don't want our leader to be gross. Uh, we get that you're working hard, yes. you know. And by the way, when there's bugs in your code, it's really it's a hard. a different definition of culture. Yeah, it's uh, really hard to get you to fix things because you're off doing other things. And so I, I was trying to hold on too long to the uh, dual yep. roles. Yep. The, um... And so how do you improve your ability as CEO? How do you learn... How do you how do you, how do you, how do you, how do you ha be on a constant improvement curve? In my first company, I think I made a mistake, and I felt like investing in me was sort of selfish. I should be working, um, and so I, you know I got invited to YPO, which is Young Presidents Organization, and it's a good learning um, type paradigm. Uh, and I looked at it a little, but I was like, no, it's way, it's like a day a month. I can't take a day a month off of work. And for me, it was like off of work. Um, and in hindsight, that was a real mistake because I didn't, you know, uh, I was too busy chopping wood to sharpen the ax. And so that as a later stage CEO, you need the skills and personal maturity and growth and reflection. And I should have cross-fertilized. I should have um, spent more time with other entrepreneurs, seeing how other people do it, um, learn and invest in myself. Maybe that's, you know, do more yoga or do meditation or be more, you know, it's like that great Gandhi quote about, oh my God, I've got so much to do. I've got to meditate for at least two hours this morning. <laughs> Um, and I didn't have that perspective. Um, and uh, really until that company sold, um, and then I did a wonderful thing that uh, Reed Hoffman also did, uh, being a Crown Fellow, um, I didn't understand that connection, that by making myself better, both as a person and a leader, I was actually helping the company, even though I was away from work. And it sounds so obvious to say it, but I just didn't, have per I didn't give myself permission to do that. Is there uh, anything you encounter, because uh, one of the things you also have a general reputation for is a deep certainty of conviction of belief. Are the things that you encounter as CEO that cause you to question your, yourself? I would say that's not an accurate attribution. It may come across that way. Um, but I'm very much like uh, Hank Paulson, and you, know, you can never know anything for sure. And maintaining a reservoir of doubt is really important. And... We often try to do the exercise, like at Netflix, you know, every uh, year, 18 months, we'll do an exercise, you know, what would, you, what would be different at Netflix if you were CEO? And it's a way for me to gather, you know, all the things. And some people say, oh, it changed the pricing. We would do this different. We'd be in the ad business. Uh, you know, and then I'll really try to think through a lot of what I really do that. Am I sure? How confident am I? So you... We call it farming for dissent. You know, you constantly, you, you can never be confident of anything. You want to constantly be curious. And yet you have to be executing really firmly. So it's a little bit like your, your um, lovely Isaiah Berlin piece uh -huh. of simultaneously knowing that there is no certainty and yet working really hard to what you think. Yep. Is Isaiah Berlin two concepts of freedom? Is, anyway, <laughs> for, for the... For another class. Yeah, for another class. You, you should hear Reed's uh, discussion of it. So. The, um, it's, I, I guess Reed is waiting till the end for the questions. Yes, just, uh, okay. yes yeah, yeah. Okay. we have okay. uh, about 25 minutes. Okay, okay, then we'll go to questions. Yeah. So um, 
uh, also partially to get, this is in part a portrait of how you think, right? So that people can then go and ask specific questions and the things that they know that you will actually be, you know, amazing at. So, um, board of directors. Uh, how do you compose them? What is, a, is there such a thing as a high performance board of directors? And uh, what would you do differently with your years of entrepreneurial experience doing this? You know, when you are interviewing venture, venture capitalists, you definitely want to pick on the people as opposed to the valuation. Um, the quality of the people in your boardroom uh, is super important to you. And I say quality, it's probably not the right word. Um, the rapport you have and the connection you have and your trust um, makes a huge difference. And so if the people in that very, that's like a marriage. It's very hard to get divorced from your board members. So you got to spend some time with them and then say, okay, if they're in, they're in. Um, and then you got to listen to them and you definitely have to be honest with them. You'd be amazed how many CEOs are not very honest with their board members. Uh, and that's poison because then the investor has to constantly be pushing and probing and trying to figure out what reality is because that's their job. So you want to really lay everything on the table and be the paradigm uh, you know, of honesty and straightforwardness with your board members. Um, and if you've got the right ones, they won't freak out they'll be very uh, thoughtful. So I would say there's no perfect board members. It's unique to each of you of, you know, someone whose judgment you trust, whose integrity you trust, and you enjoy being with. Do you think the role of the board changes as the organization changes size? And if, and if so, how? Yeah, um, when you're smaller, your board members know a lot more uh, than you. Um, as a company and because they pattern match on a lot of different things. Um, the larger you get, the more any board member, I was on the board of Microsoft for a number of years and on Facebook, you know, you spend two days a quarter uh, on a public board and your just level of depth is not nearly as, as strong as the CEOs and the senior leadership teams. So, you, you know, you're more of a safety net then. Um, then you are, um, you know, able to uh, to contribute. And then the last, in terms of the the roles, and then we'll get to the blitz scaling part of this. But uh, how should someone think about knowing whether or not they're a capable founder or not? Mm. How how do you kind of say I am like I should actually do this versus I shouldn't do this? I, yeah, it's a good question. I'm not sure. I. I didn't know. I just cared about the product, this first product idea I had. I wanted to see that out. And I was definitely a reluctant CEO. Um, and a couple times I'd screwed up badly enough that I said to the board, uh, you know, let's get someone in who knows what they're doing. And I'll be VP of engineering and that'll be fine. And, and both times they said, no, yeah, you did screw up, but, you know, we still rather have you than, than someone else in the dislocation that that brings. Um, so that's why I say I was reluctant. And the whole first company, which was 91 to 97, I was kind of miserable. I was always underwater. The company was always, as soon as I learned something, the company was bigger. Um, and so, uh, you know, and I, I was killing myself, you know, physically, mentally, trying so hard, you know, and just underwater. Uh, then that got acquired in 97. 
Uh, and we started Netflix, you know, and it was like 15 people. It was like compared to the other company had been 700. So it was like so easy, you know. Um, and so then Netflix has been fantastic and total joy for me because it's kind of like your second kid or something where your first kid, you know, it's a panic. Oh, my God, you know. And depending on the kids, you know, as long as they're both healthy, your second kid's much easier and you're much less freaked out. Um, so, uh, for me then I have enjoyed, you know, the last 18, 19 years tremendously because I've been able to keep up with the challenges. Yeah. So let's shift to, um, scaling and blitz scaling. So, you know, one of the things that, uh, you and I have actually had a conversation about, uh, before is like, you know, sometimes these things are just normal scale up and sometimes there's blitz scaling. Uh, Netflix is actually more an example of kind of just regular scaling. There's mm-hmm. relatively little blitz scaling within it. But it's one of the things where, uh, actually, in fact, the consistency of expecting growth also matters and being systematic about how you change size. What's your sense of, of, of the key characteristics to know in advance in order to scale, right? And then, you know, what's your kind of reflections on the kind of the different levels? Um. Well, let's see, there are scale economies in businesses like Amazon and Netflix. The bigger you get, the cheaper the marginal customer sale uh, is. Um, And those are powerful. Uh, Those merit you investing forward to get to scale. And so running losses for the first couple of years, um, doing things like that. So call that normal business. And then there's a couple of rare businesses like LinkedIn, Facebook, that are network effect businesses. And then the prize of getting big first is so much larger um, than just a scale business that in those businesses, you know, it's worth, um, you know, selling 90% of the company to raise a billion dollars to be the big one. You must be the winner. It's such extreme winner take all. Um, And so I think it's the degree of winner take all and network effect that gets you to either take the risks and the stress of um, blitz scaling rather than the more like Netflix, like Amazon in the early years, we're going 80% year over year and then 70 and 60 and now we're 25 and 25 at our size or Amazon's are big numbers. Okay. But that's like a normal, great scaling business. And, and both Amazon against Walmart and us against cable and satellite, we have huge markets. Okay. So, you know, growing at these rates is great and hopefully we'll be able to grow, you know, for 20 years and, and Amazon the same. Uh, <clears throat> But then there's a couple businesses, again, eBay was one of the first, um, where it's real network effect. And in those businesses, I think you do kind of crazy practices because you've got to grow, you know, 300% um, to maximize the opportunity. So you're going to be sloppy on a number of things. So you probably don't worry about talent density and you don't do a bunch of the things that I described, which are the things that are appropriate if you're trying to be a careful, disciplined operator. But if it's, you know, get big or go home, and, you know, then that's the interesting thing. But it, <clears throat> again, most businesses is not that. It's businesses that have network effect. Yeah. Well, um, some of the things that I think interesting about it is sometimes it's network effect. Sometimes you have to get to a minimum scale, which is Amazon and you um, and other, uh, there's a number of other businesses. The thing I think is um, would be fun to get some uh, perspective on here for you is like, when do you think that it's necessary to move fast because of competition, right? So like, for example, another thing I think drives scaling fast is you say, okay, 
I've got to occupy the, the greenfield market before them. Because presumably, this is a little bit of how you think about global now. Like in terms of, it's not just a question of content and globalism, but it's a question of, look, we've, we've proven this thing and let's, let's, in every relevant market in the world, this is something we should be there. So no? No, um, or yes and no. Um, a company can get started two or three years before yeah. us in Germany yep. and we can knock them out in 12 months. So, because it's a, we have great scale yep. um, and it's not a network effect yep. where when eBay, uh, tried to knock out Yahoo Japan, they, yep. they didn't succeed yep. and, and that's been permanent. And so if you're in a network effect business, mm. then you get more of first is forever, uh -huh. yep. okay? Because the barriers are, are really strong. Um, but if you're just in a scale business, <clears throat> you can go in with a lot of uh, content and energy depending on what your market is. And that's why Amazon, uh, it's like, uh, how quickly did they wipe out CD now, you know, in like 1999, like really quickly, mm -hmm. yeah. right? Because it didn't matter that CD now had started earlier or something like, or had more scale on that mm -hmm. side. Yeah. Um, so I, again, I think it's really related to barriers and the, mm -hmm. these network effect barriers are so strong. Yep. Although just as you're saying, scale barriers are relevant too. Because once you get to a certain size, you can leverage your size in order to win. Because that's precisely your Germany point. There are scale economies, they're yeah. just not as strong as a yeah. barrier. So yep. you can think of barrier as how much pricing power do you have, mm -hmm. um, which could either be how much advertising or what the literal price is. Uh, and if you've got a ton of pricing power, then you know you can raise prices a lot and, and it's still very hard to come after you yep. um, because you've got that, that network. Were there any, as you got larger in terms of the organization, were there any new strategies that you added? Did you? For example, a classic one is corporate development, right? In terms of, you know, that's something you now do when you're hundreds of people versus earlier or thousands. Were there any kind of key strategies that got added? Obviously, original content was one that came in on scale. Yeah, not particularly for us. So in 17 years, we have never done an acquisition. Obviously, we haven't been acquired. Um, and corporate development is <clears throat> M&A. Uh, so it, again, we haven't had those kind of dynamics in, mm -hmm. in our market. Yeah. There's other markets where the key thing is to buy up a bunch of companies. They might be competitors or adjoining to get to scale and differentiation. Yeah. So let's uh, do a last few questions on kind of Silicon Valley and then open up to, to the group. So um, what do you think makes Silicon Valley so unique in the world? Well, there've been a lot of companies like Amazon that are very, that are scale businesses, not network effect, um, that are successful outside of Silicon Valley because you don't have to be here, I think, to do a scale business. Mm -hmm. So far, all the network effect businesses are here because it's this network effect is when you need to do blitz scaling, you need to be in Silicon Valley or it's like 10 times better as opposed to only 50% better. So oh, it's here or China, 10 cents. In their markets, Alibaba. yes, that, yep. that, fair enough. So the, China is such a self-contained market. Mm -hmm. It's an isolated island because of the Great Firewall that yeah. it just it might be a different planet. It's got its own yeah. ecosystem. Yeah, a huge island. <laughs> yes. Okay, it's an, it's an, it, it's, it's an island. For yes. the rest of the world, yes. you know, that, that headquarters has, you know, has been here. Yep. So it's, and, and why do you think Silicon Valley tends to be network effects? Central. I think it's, I mean, it's, you know, historic factors that get Detroit to be the center of the car world. And then, um, you know, then there's more talent there to build car companies. And, mm -hmm. you know, you get those kind of 
you get, you know, Manhattan and London for financial products, mm -hmm. you know, so you get density. It's almost irrelevant why it started. Mm -hmm. It's just that once it happens, then it's the best place to be and then continues to be a better, I mean, it's, it's a much better place now than it was 20 years ago for entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. And then that was better than 20 years before that. Mm -hmm. The more of you that do companies, the more there's that ecosystem. Um, and so our benefits as an area continue to go again. But if you've got like a, a minor idea, you know, that will be a $10 million business in 10 years, like yeah, it's pretty good, really. Um, like move to Austin, you know, do not do that here because you're competing with, you know, blow away ideas for people and talent and money and yep. um, cost of talent. Are there any myths that you think we tell ourselves as Silicon Valley people that are... are are worthy of exploding? Not, okay. not obviously, but... I'll give you one that I think is kind of, um, I think it's kind of funny. It's actually, in fact, I think a lot of Silicon Valley people think that they're actually very good at managing. And actually, in fact, you know, they're not bad at managing, but actually, in fact, the, it's the composition of how you put together like network effects businesses, how do you do a disruption in industry, those kind of things create a lot of things. It's not actually, in fact, kind of like genius management techniques. Uh, I don't know. Do you think Larry Page or Steve Jobs would have said they're good at managing? I don't, I don't know. I think like Larry Page is an amazing scientist yeah. and he's like a really yeah. deep thinker and he's an amazing guy to inspire and lead Google. Um, but uh, visionary in so many ways. But it's not like he would go into GE and be that successful. He doesn't think of himself as a general manager. And, and so I don't think most Silicon Valley people, Tim Cook might because he grew up in that in operations and he is a very talented manager. Um, so it just goes to show that, I mean, you look how successful Tim Cook's been at Apple. It's been phenomenal. And it's always a very different person than, than Steve was in man different management style, which just says there's multiple styles that work. I think if you, you shouldn't try to be someone else. Don't like, you know, read about Steve Jobs and then start wearing mock black turtlenecks, you know? <laughs> be yourself. God, here I am in black. Um, um, uh, you know, you want to be, figure out what your emotional, uh, you know, center is and be that really great and don't try to be other people. I mean, it's fine to read about them, um, but there's no one style uh, that you, that's, that's, and the, if you look at the varieties of the really successful companies, the variety of leaders is quite, quite wide. So the question is, how do we evolve the internal uh, management it, it to move from DVD to streaming? Um, it, it, because the first streaming product offering was integrated into DVD, if you were a DVD subscriber from Netflix, you then got a little bit of free streaming and then you got a little more free streaming. It was pretty integrated um, as opposed to it was a separate offering. Um, so it only got really difficult when we got to a separate offering. There's a streaming service from Netflix and there's a DVD service. Um, and the only really painful part was probably 2010 or 2011, uh, out of 30 VPs, we had five who focused on DVD. And this was a close-knit exec team. And then we kicked the five out of the meeting. Um, and we realized we have to eat, sleep, and breathe streaming like Hulu, um, you know, and not... Uh, also have this great five people. And of course they felt bad. And eventually they realized they're great at DVDs and they should follow that. So there was a time of separation, 
But in the first part, it was integrated, but that's because the product offering was integrated. Uh, in the back. Oh. Uh, well, as you grow, you know, uh, yes, thanks. Uh, the question is how have regulatory strategies been important? Um, we've had to fight oh, for net neutrality and a big threat for us uh, was that cable companies who are most of broadband would get to charge us a tremendous amount to be able to serve our customers um, as opposed to uh, be pretty open and that they would have an advantage because they wouldn't charge themselves. So we've had to fight that regulatory battle over the last four years. Um, and then every company that gets large faces antitrust concerns over time. Um, and so, uh, and you see that with Google in Europe right now. So the question is, um, why don't we police or crack down on users who share with other users? So um, when a, a wife shares with her husband the password, it's probably okay. Okay, so uh, when the dad shares with the kids that are six years old living at home, it's probably okay. Uh, when that kid uh, goes to college, it's probably okay. Remember, 90% of kids live at home when they go to college, so that's definitely okay. So now the kids, you know, in the apartment next door, that maybe that's okay or is it not? Or when the kid graduates from college, hmm, is that okay? So the only thing that's really not okay is the dorm room. So, so the dorm. So the dorm gets an account or the fraternity gets an account and 30 people do it. And there's an easy check on that, which is you only get one or two concurrent streams um, at the same time. And so you're not going to share too broadly. And to get more concurrent streams, you get, um, you know, it's more cost. Uh, and so that is an effective limiter on broad scale sharing. And then we don't have to try to police people's living situations. You know, is it three friends? You know, it's like three friends in an apartment. Is that legitimate or not? Uh, you know, so we, we get to get out of all of that. Uh, uh, sorry, Chris second, but first, woman behind you. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so I read about Netflix. Um, it, uh, on the website, it talks about uh, sports mentality when it comes to managing. I'm just curious, what's the um, benefit and, like, um, some, like, side effect on that? Sure, the classic, well, it's probably not for you guys, but it used to be a classic metaphor for companies was the family and you'd hire them and you'd be like, we're a family, you know, we look after each other. And it's kind of baloney because, you know, it, uh, you'll lay someone off in a way that you wouldn't, you know, your sister. And so, you know, it's like you want them to work for you like they were a family member for free and cheap. Um, but you're not really prepared to treat them like a family member if you're honest. And so really the professional relationship is like a sports team. And if you want to win a championship, you got to have incredible talent at every position. And so we say, look, we're like a professional sport, not like your kid's soccer team, but no, like a professional sports team where we pay people well, we want them to win. And if you have one good game, bad game, you don't like lose your position, but ultimately you're fighting for your position every year. Um, and that's how we feel about it. And um, it's, as long as we're honest about it, it's exciting because then 
you can play really sophisticated uh, sports. So to do a blind pass in soccer and you just know the person's there, that's an art. You need great teammates, you know, that you are so well rehearsed. Um, and, you know, so to do that, you need great talent and that's fun to be around. So uh, we'll get to Chris's question in a second, but that's too good of a layup. Uh, comments on the Chris and Mai's book, The Alliance? Uh, meaning in terms of um, ter short terms of duty. And yes. Yeah, no, that you're, you're signing up to get something done, which is like a, a player's contract. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't tend to use contracts in Silicon Valley, but Hollywood does. Their practice is formalized and you sign up for three years or five years and, the, and they mostly stick. Um, and so the next evolution of the alliance is introducing contracts in a Silicon Valley where, again, we're not used to it from a labor standpoint, but large sectors of the economy work that way and it works fine. You know, it's a different system. Yeah. Uh, so first part is, um, can you talk about a few of the other things that you decide to deliberately do differently versus pure, pure software? And then the second part is you've talked about investing in yourself, like what are the things that have been most productive in terms of return on investment in investing in yourself? Sure. Um, the things, the big thing that we do differently is in Pure, we were really trying, uh, which was 91 and 97, to be efficient. And so we were engineers running a company. And so every time something went wrong, we would put a process in place to make sure that didn't go wrong again, which is a very semiconductor yield frame of reference. And, you know, we saw everything as a magic set of processes. But then the market shifted on us, in that case, from C++ to Java. And it turned out that everyone at the company had, were well adapted to following the rules and implementing the processes. But that doesn't make them the people who are well adapted to rethink the market market and how should we approach this other market. Uh, and so the company struggled mightily and ultimately, you know, was sold because of that. And so what we realized is we were over-optimized for one business and we had let the company become, um, it's like monoculture agriculture. You know, we, were, we had, you know, one strain of wheat over a huge area, um, very efficient in the short term. And then what we should have optimized for is flexibility. And that in fact, all companies face challenges when market shifts and we should have been more tolerant of inefficiency and mistake and error and more focused on flexibility. Because I think in the long term, flexibility is what's chosen for. So if you think of human evolution, um, you know, we're not very well adapted to many specific things and we humans are super well adapted to be flexible. And so our life form has, you know, conquered the world uh, because of that flexibility, despite many, you know, uh, maladaptations for any particular climate. And so, of course, there's many examples if you think about it. And the, the trick is management's generally short term, you know, you're focused on making things better next year. And that's mostly efficiency seeking. So you have to balance that with some long term about the value of seeking flexibility. And then the second part is? Best thing for, um, it probably varies by person. For me, it's been reading, um, you know, a combination of Western Civ and uh, leadership and management books. Um, Beyond Entrepreneurship is one of my favorite. Jim Collins, before he did Good to Great and Built to Last, did this book in 95 or 96, he published it. Uh, in the first 80 pages, like you could read that every year for 10 years. It's really, really perfect for the entrepreneur. Beyond Entrepreneurship. Theory. Uh, here. Can you, can you talk more specifically about how you incorporated the machine learning and the AI side of things with your own data set on Netflix? And 
wild, crazy world of Hollywood in producing. Like, how do you evaluate like content like that's passed on, especially now since you're going to have a lot of pitches? We basically, it's a good insight. Um, the question is, how do you apply machine learning to picking content or developing content? We basically don't. Um, your intuition is, how would that be relevant? So what shows up when you, you know, open Netflix on your iPhone or on the web or on a TV that is a ranking problem. Um, and, you know, the, the ecosystem is pretty good at ranking problems. And, and so it's a big ranking problem. What's mo what are the titles most relevant and interesting to you? So it's really big on that aspect. Now we can apply that in marketing also um, with uh, real-time bidding and, and personalized marketing. Uh, but in terms of picking shows, that's like picking employees. It's a human judgment task um, of what's going to be big. Once the show's produced, we can selectively promote it on uh, statistical techniques based on who's enjoying it, who's watching it really quickly versus watching it slowly, what other people are like that. So promoting the content to the right subset of the audience, which is critical when you've got a big global audience, is a very machine learning problem. Uh, but the actual production, um, like people have, other people have tried to do script analysis systems. You know, you take a script and you code it up in all these dimensions and then try to do predictions and none of it's worked. Um, so you, there's so much in the artistic execution that you as a consumer then love that from the script, it, it's super. And once it's produced, there's no value in predicting it. You're just going to like put it out and try. Sorry, it's a good follow-up. So is the focus of Netflix going to be uh, one show for larger audiences or smaller shows for niche audiences? The question is, are we focused on big shows um, or small shows? Uh, we're agnostic. We're focused on intensity. Um, so we want you to love what you watch. And sometimes that will be a big show because uh, you're in the mainstream of the society that you live in. And sometimes it will be a niche show because you're not in the mainstream. And, but again, it's all about intensity. We have to match cost of production to the expected size of the audience. But we're just as happy to do small shows as big shows, um, especially as you get to personalized marketing externally. Um, and of course, you've got personalized merchandising within the service. Are sure? So the question is, how, how do we ensure these are good shows and how much creative direction do we do? It depends upon the show. Generally, uh, we like to meet with a team and then if we like them and back them, let them run. Okay, so we're, we're very hands-off once we've made a decision to back them. Um, if they want input, we'll give it to them, we'll do these things. But relative to other studios, we're much more uh, letting them run and we've won a reputation for that in the creative community. So last question from the side, Blue Jacket. So especially when you're first starting out, how quickly should you go to your board and your, and your board of advisors and how do you think about those individuals? What characteristics do you look for? You know, it's a much better ecosystem for that, especially the board of advisors level now than it was 20 years ago. Um, I ended up not having any board of advisors and it wasn't that common. Um, and so I think Reed Hoffman would be a much better, uh, much more insightful for you on that sort of, you know, the subtlety of the current startup ecosystem or Sam Altman that you, you met. I'm just not that qualified for him.
So with that, let's thank Reed for joining us for a little over time. Thanks.